Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Booze from the haters, point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah, watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one, let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if the bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause the bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to a bee. Welcome to another episode of the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell, along with a guy who is three years younger than me and yet has a three times deeper voice than I do. Brock, my friend, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm I'm starting to enjoy these, I guess, compliments, should I call them, before each podcast. Uh, I'm not really sure what this one was about, but hey, nonetheless, <laughs> I'll take it. Just, just absorb it. Just absorb it. That's all. That's all. That's all you can do. Um, okay. Now let's um, let's talk first about in, in, in honor of the 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 Rain Man coming off of his uh, his career game tonight against the Lakers. Um, let's start with Shake Milton. Shake had thirty nine on Sunday afternoon, and I think for me the coolest. And I guess the most, not impressive, but refreshing part of his game that I noticed, and I think he got away from it as the game went on, but in the first quarter, he was certainly going to that. It was his ability to keep the ball low on the dribble in the mid-range and then use a quick move to to, to create space for a mid-range jump shot. And I tweeted it out, but it reminded me a lot of C.J. McCollum. It sort of looked as though it was a quick move, you know, it was intentional, deliberate, and it was like boom, boom, and then shot. Um, and you, and you'll, what you'll see is a, a lot of guys know how to dribble. Um, Steph Curry knows how to dribble. Chris Paul knows how to dribble. CJ McCollum knows how to dribble. The guys who know how to dribble, they dribble with intent and purpose, and you know, sometimes Ben Simmons will have it going to lulls where he doesn't know how to dribble because it's just sort of floating around and not really getting it, making any progress towards the basket. But Shake, it felt like he was dribbling with intent the entire game. And it was really refreshing to just see someone who could create a shot. What did you, what did you see from Shake? Well, first and foremost, I want to talk about ball security with Shake Milton. And that was a problem that riddled him in both his NBA stints prior and in the G League developing. Uh, as well, but for Shake Milton, in the previous five games, he has the second fewest turnovers of 45 plus players with 300 or more touches. Wow. And I think that's a testament to how poised he is with the basketball. Like you said, dribbling with intent. He's a relentless finisher, I'd argue, in this month or two span of playing basketball. And he's finishing with both his right and his left hand. He's getting to the basket, he's attacking. Like you alluded to, he's creating a shot off the dribble. He's fulfilling the point guard position nicely, but it's an added bonus that he's been shooting as as prolifically as he has. In the previous five games, he's made 22 of 30 three-point attempts. That's over 70% from beyond the arc, one of the top five highest percentages in the NBA. In the catch-and-shoot scenario, 13 of 19, over 68% successful there. And on pull-up opportunities, he's made nine of 11 tries from beyond the arc. 81.8%. Now, all of that is an added bonus at the point guard position. And in this Brett Brown-centered offense, which really revolves around three-point shooting, having that added bonus, especially from your guy at the point guard position in the absence of Ben Simmons, it's awesome because he's going to be responsible for a ton of the offense. Handling the ball, he has to facilitate. 
he used to create assist points. And if he can also add points from beyond the arc, but in the perimeter as well, it's, it's, it's really invaluable for this team. Even in the fourth quarter, Shake Millen has been magnificent in his previous five games. He's top eight in scoring in the NBA in that fourth quarter. He's hit eight of 10 three-point attempts, 80% there. His 125.3 offensive rating is top eight in the NBA. And his true shooting percentage is also top eight in the fourth quarter, 88.5% in the fourth. I mean, it's a small sample size, but peak efficiency, and he's really, really good as per the eye test. And like you said, it's just really refreshing and both encouraging as well because this is a guy that came through the Sixers pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think you make a lot of good points there. And I think that ball security is going to be so, so important for this team in, in, terms of something that we we haven't seen before you go back through the last couple of years of guards and if jj reddick has to take more than like two dribbles and then chew gum it's going to be like off his foot out of bounds or picked off or he's gonna get swallowed up by a double and and then it's a turnover um you know ben simmons has gotten better with that he still dribbles like i said a little bit aimlessly at times um, but they, and you know, Fultz was, Fultz was pretty good at getting downhill and just dribbling with intent. He just couldn't really do anything. Like it was either, either a layup or a pass. The shake sort of gave the first sign, kind of sign that we have a guy or they have a guy who you can actually fit into your lineup, plug him in, not have to be so concerned with featuring him because he's not a star, at least not yet. Who knows? Um, and he can he can be the guy who can sort of be that spark plug and make make plays off the dribble. And I think it's impre- is especially surprising and impressive because he looked just so uncomfortable in the summer league in Vegas. I mean, he I think he was shooting horribly every game, and you had we had serious questions as can this can this kid really cut it in the NBA. I think he's asked, answered a lot of uh, questions about his ability to play at, at the NBA level. And I think his stroke looks quicker. And I think, um, you know, he look, he's playing with a lot more confidence. Still has a lot of strength to, that he has to put on. But I, I do think that he's a solid piece that you can use and implement on a very, on a, on a very uh, team-friendly deal. And he's a, he's a nice role player for this team in, in the next couple of seasons. I think if he really wanted to solidify himself as a rotational piece in in the future for the Sixers, he would add like a one go to jump sh- jump shot move to create space. Like Butler last year had that couple dribble and then sidestep sidestep to the right three. If Shake had like a, had one move that it was just a killer move that he could use to create space. I think that would be how he could really separate himself from the rest of the role players on this team. Yeah. Namely against the Clippers, when the Sixers had Milton operate in space and tried to set him with a screen or utilize him in a pick and roll scenario, he attacked the opposing big men. Over 20% of his points came against either Zubac or Montrez Harrell. And most of that is because his move was around 12 to 15 feet away from the basket it was creating space with a through the legs or a crossover, something off the dribble. And then he'd hit his spot. Like I said, uh, usually around 12 to 15 feet, right around that elbow, maybe even a little closer to the basket. But I think that's really lethal against the big, especially when you're open in space, you can kind of create that separation and get your jump shot off. But Austin, I think you're right. If he can create a go-to move off the dribble against opposing guards, it makes him even more valuable at the point guard position. And I think, Although there will be a clear offensive regression, he's definitely solidified himself in the Sixers' role right now. And I could potentially see him being the seventh or eighth man off the bench in the playoffs if this play continues. I don't see how he could keep him off the floor. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I do wonder, so he played some G League this year. He played he – was, he was hurt for a portion of the season – he played some in the in the G League last year, and he's really just sort of gotten his opportunity more so this year um, than anything else. Do you attribute his growth and his development more to Brett Brown or to Connor Johnson, the head coach of the G League team? You know, it's tough because 
I think I need a bigger sample size for Shake. Uh, and being around Connor Johnson, he's an innovative mind and he's a really good person. And I like what he does in Delaware with his offense, where it's kind of like run and gun. Um, for me, I think the environment matters and Brett Brown is definitely part of that environment. So for a player like Shake Milton, it's important to get comfortable. And then once you earn the trust of your head coach, you can go on the court and perform. And once you start to get rewarded more minutes and, and your confidence goes up, then you find your stroke, then you get more comfortable in that environment, and then you can solidify a role. Things of that sort all play into a, a player's development. Given Brett Brown's history as a developmental coach, I think he's definitely a factor. But at the same time, you know, Brett Brown was playing Howell Neto in, in serious minutes over Shake Milton, and Milton fell out of the rotation due to injury and then due to the totem pole. And even last week, you and I were talking about why we understood all Neto as the starting point guard playing 28 minutes. And now it's kind of like you, you, you're kicking yourself on the butt for saying that and having that on record, given how good Shake Milton is performing. Uh, so long story short, I will attribute most of the development to Brett Brown, just given his history and, and given how much attention he pays to player development. And this season, having the apostles on the coaching staff, working with each player, each player having a specific amount of coaches, working directly with him. I think that's a byproduct of Brett Brown and his system. But at the same time, this is the same guy who after the all-star break or even during, if, if I'm remembering correctly, sat each player down and described the role to each player. And Shake Melt was informed by Brett Brown that he would not be in the rotation. He, he wouldn't necessarily see minutes. Uh, but kudos to Shake Milton for putting his head down, working every single day, perfecting his craft and, Showing up and balling. I mean, you saw him on the jump the other day. I assume he's a very well-spoken, confident kid, and I, I wish him nothing but the best. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's interesting because if you go through the, the history of Brett Brown guards, obviously a lot of them either can spot up and shoot but can't dribble. Others can only dribble but can't shoot. He, but yet he's always tried to get a guard in there that could facilitate while also, um, you know, being like a dynamic playmaker. You, you see who he drafts. He draft, you know, he wanted to draft Fultz. Um, MCW was an idea. He, in, throughout his history, he's tried to get playmaking guards there in, in in the program as you would say and develop them and you know last year it was butler uh, and you know he he had a lot of a lot of say into what they did last year so clearly he was about getting butler he was for it and so it's 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 pretty clear that brett brown has tried to establish a pattern of developing guards it just hasn't panned out whether it be on him or unfortunate circumstances it you know it is what it is. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's it just an interesting pattern. To, I wanted I wanted to point out. Let's uh you know we've given Shake Milton twelve minutes and that's a that's a it's a pretty good um seg it's a, it's a pretty good amount of time. So let's let's dive into something else. So a quick break from the pod. Uh, the feed to Embiid is brought to you by the King Cobra. Do you like shotgunning beer? Do you want to increase your shotgun time at parties? Check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes the perfect shotgunning hole under a second. Also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on a keychain. For information about the King Cobra, check them out on Instagram at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. And Cobra is spelled with a K. For a 10% discount on all products, enter the code PRESTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. Now, back to the feed. I'm just going to put this out there. I'm, I'm, this is something that I heard that it, it is possible that maybe they put, um, that they, they start to shop Jay rich, Josh Richardson. And I, 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 I think it's a very interesting idea. Cause I don't know that they're, I don't know that, that the context it's like, we're shopping him to, um, include in the deal with Horford, or it's just the guy's an expiring deal. We want to get something back that we can sort of build with over the next couple of years because we don't feel like paying him 
a ton of money or we can't afford to pay him a ton of money. Um, I, I would be very, very intrigued by what the market for him looks. I, I, I've heard that it's, you know, that, that he, that he does have a, a, a trade market. There is value to him. He's certainly been up and down this year a lot. And I think overall the role that he's been in just isn't the most conducive role to his game. He's not this 38% spot-up shooter who can just catch it and then real quick get, get off a shot on the fly and it, have it have a good chance of going in. I mean, he's missed a lot of shots and he's missed badly a lot this year at times. He's and he I think he likes to sort of um, create that, that look for himself off the dribble, like one or two dribbles top of the key, then put it up. Um, I, I just think that he hasn't given them enough in terms of consistency, knowing what you're going to get every single night, and, and, and health, really, to to warrant, yeah. you know, holding out for the best option or to trying to maneuver money around, even though it's going to be hell anyway, to try to keep him around here. So I, I do have an idea in mind, and I, I would propose I, I, I would propose this to you. What do you think of the idea of you know, remember how we talked about Tobias Harris for 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 uh, Buddy Healed? Not not Tobias Harris. Let's go to someone else. Let's go Al, Josh, Sheikh or Zaire, and two okay. firsts. Okay, well I, I I think I know who you're gonna ask for in return, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. Buddy Heald. All for Buddy Heald. Absolutely or you, not. You wouldn't do that? Or no. no, no, no. One so 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 how about this then? Josh Al. One of Zaire Shake. And then one first. No. I still want it. Josh. I thought, I, I, honestly, I thought you were gonna say Bradley Beal. <laughs> no, I I don't see him getting traded. I really don't. Um, I, I think I think Buddy I, I think Buddy Hill's unhappy in Sacramento. I do. Um, and I think that that they're dumb enough or or, or they're you know incompetent enough that they would actually give the Sixers a conversation um, for for the for for a trade like that. And so I I I do I do you know have this Josh Horford. A first and another pick. Yeah, I, I, I think that's enough there. I, I, I don't know that you have to include Milton or Zaire. Well, at this point, like, what is Zaire going to give you ever, honestly? Well, I'm sure people thought that about Cork Maz a year or two ago, and uh, I, I'm sure people can say the same about Shake Milton. He's still very young, and of course, the Sixers have a crowded problem with their wings, but. I think defensively and in transition, he's enough to at least warrant keeping him or stashing him for another year or two. Uh, if it was a piece you needed to add to obtain a player to put you over as a contender, then sure. But for that that steep of a price for Buddy Heald, I'm not sure. Now, my problem with the Josh Richardson report, which isn't necessarily a report, it's more so speculation than anything, and hearing his name linked to Al Horford trade packages potentially – Josh Richardson has barely played this season. And prior to his nagging injuries that he kept re-aggravating with his legs, he had an incredible month of November. November was his longest, most successful month of basketball. 12 games played, over 31 minutes a game, 17 points a game on 48% shooting from the field, 42.4% from beyond the arc on five and a half attempts per game. So Josh Richardson is a tier three player, in my opinion. Tier one are the untouchable superstars. Tier two is either the really youthful talent that was just drafted or budding superstars. They're, they're frankly untouchable, but of course, then there's trade scenarios that end up happening like similar to D'Angelo Russell and, and other younger players. And then there's tier three players. In my opinion, Richardson is a tier three player because he has shown promise. I'm not really sure we know what his ceiling is yet. He's not a budding superstar but he's the type of player that a contender would really love to trade for, and I don't think the asking price will be too high. Now, I'm not sure what the market value is for Josh Richardson, but for the Sixers to shop him or even trade him right now, it would make little no sense, in my opinion. It it, it seems as if this is as low as his value will be. 
This will mark his second fewest minutes played in all of his entire career this season. And like I said, his longest, most successful stretch of basketball came in November. I'm not sure why a team in the summer would want to trade for a guy that's a temporary contract, right? So unless you can fully ensure you're going to retain him, it's a one-year contract. And of sure. course, you can add him. You can you can add him to an Al Horford package. But then, the question becomes, what team is taking that on? What team is taking on Al Horford's 100 plus million dollar contract? Granted, the Sixers can eat some of that value, but what team is taking that contract? Then Josh Richardson, who will likely be a rental, and then get a 60 to 75 million dollar four year contract a season uh, a season after this expires. And then another player, there, there's very few teams, I think, that will take that package. And in my opinion, I think this is as low as Richardson's value will be. And also, I think the Sixers like Richardson. Now, I doubt they can retain him because, like I said, he'll probably warrant a four-year, $60-plus contract. But I think the Sixers like Richardson, and I think they think he's an integral part of their success. So if they don't have to move him, I don't think they will. Interesting. Okay. Um <clears throat> I I think Buddy Heald's the kind of player that that's how you repair all the damage that's been done this offseason, this past offseason. He's a 20 points per game guy, a very a, a high efficiency three-point shooter, and he can create for you a bit too. Um and so you know, I I, I like the idea and I, and I you know, I I totally understand what you're saying in terms of you know, you're asking a team to do, to do something pretty dumb. But then again, you look at the Kings and everything they do is pretty dumb. So, you know, and, and, and I don't think they need to trade Josh. I don't. I, I just think that I, I don't see an avenue where he's here past next season. So it makes sense to cut bait and get something in return. And, you know, let, let him let let him get get his money or, get, or, or you know, continue his career on. And that you can just you have something more going forward than just letting him walk um, for nothing. Of course, they could do, they could do the avenue of a sign and trade. Um, you know, like they did with Jimmy. Uh, it, it's just an idea that I wanted to float out there. But I, 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 if if the Kings were willing to talk, I'd be very interested in Buddy Hield. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just don't know that that package is necessarily. I, I think it may be a little too much. For Buddy or for, or for for the, so so because so, the way the way that you said it, I, I thought it meant that you were you were like I, I don't see the the value coming to the Kings. No, I think it's too much on the Sixers end. Gotcha. For for just gotcha. Buddy Hill, I think I, I think the package of of Milton or Zaire Smith, Richardson, Horford, and then picks on top of that is too much value for the Sixers to give. Interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good point. I just think that you have to give Richardson in order to sweeten up that contract that you're that that you're you're giving up at Horford so I I think that's why you have to do it and I think picks are are what makes it um um picks are another thing that they would have to include to sweeten it up I think um let's let's move on to another topic so it's been what two and like three quarters games without Embiid since he went down with the shoulder injury Mm-hmm. Horford's been the focal point of the offense for that entire time. He's been like the 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 they've run the offense through him out of the high post. They've, they've given him a lot of looks, and it still seems as though even as as being a main you know a main point of the offense, he still just can't figure it out. He, he it's it's just not working for him. Um, he was dreadful defensively against the, the, the Clippers. He was pretty good against the the uh, Knicks and the Clippers both. But the defense is where you signed him, and I I just don't know anymore. I I, I don't know if he still has it. I think he, his legs look very sort of shoddy, and I think. It's you know they're, they're, they've given him an, a variety of different situations, and now the one without the without Embiid is very conducive to him because he's been one of the main cogs in, in offenses his entire career, and it still doesn't look like he's sort of has any kind of life to him. 
So I'm wondering, maybe he's just given up and he's mailed in the season. Maybe he's just, you know, it, there's just so much going on in his head because how bad it's been that it's just sort of a lost cause at this point for this season. Kyle Newbeck said in his podcast with Seamus Clancy that he's talked to people around the around the Boston area who are like familiar with the Celtics, and they've all expressed that similar concern. And then he just turns up a different notch in the playoffs, and they're all content. Well, what do you think? Well, here's where I did my homework. Uh, I'm on spring break right now for my college, so I, I have to devote my time elsewhere. So I devoted it to Al Horford statistics. Post All-Star break, eight of 23 on catch-and-shoot opportunities, three of nine in the post, one in five, one of five in the paint, two of eight from mid-range, altogether nine of 32 on jump shots. That's 28.1% on jump shots. Prior to the All-Star break, Horford was responsible for 16.9% of the Sixers' points. You'd assume that number would go up with increased looks and Increased opportunities, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons sideline. Well, that 16.9 dropped to 12.9. And even more concerningly, it was over 20% last season. So he was responsible for a lot of Boston's offense last season. This year, it's down at 12.9. He was responsible for 11.1% of the team's turnovers prior to the All-Star break after 14.7. Now, Austin, here's what I'm thinking. Boston knew there would be a regression for Al Horford, and that's why Philadelphia was able to sign him. Okay, I understand Boston allocated their money elsewhere, but that was with reason. Al Horford with Boston was a ticking time bomb. And I say that because for most of all of the seasons, despite other, of course, seasons with injuries where his, limited, uh, his, his minutes were limited, he played over 2,800 minutes, 2,700 minutes, 2,400 minutes with Atlanta. In Boston, he played 2,100 minutes, 2,200 minutes, and in his final season, 1,900 minutes. Now, keep in mind, Atlanta, like I said, 2,600 minutes, 2,400 minutes, 2,700, 2,700. Now, that's not the only thing. Here's partially why the Sixers signed him. In 2016, his shot selection changed. Prior to 2016, most to all of his field goal attempts, or an overwhelming majority, came within five feet of the basket or 15 to 19 feet. In 2016, when a shot selection changed, most of all of those field goal attempts came from 25 to 29 feet. Now this season, Al Horford has 179 shots there. That's the most since 2016 when the shot selection, of course, changed. In 2016, he shot 37% there, 25 to 29 feet. In 2017, he shot 46.5% there. In the season prior, he shot 40.7% there. You know what it is this year? 34%. I think the Sixers signed him partially, <laughs> surprisingly, I think the Sixers partially signed Al Horford because they said if this guy's shot selection is primarily from 25 to 29 feet, that's where a lot of his field goals are coming, and he's shooting over 37% there in three seasons. Well, it pays to have a player like him. Maybe he can definitely space the floor because 25 to 29 feet, that warrants the defense stepping out on him. And like I said, two of those seasons over 40%, the other one 37%, that's above league average. The Sixers paid Al Horford to shoot a successful rate from 25 to 29 feet. Now, Austin, let's play a little game here. And I did this investigation to see if this was really a Brett Brown problem or an age catching up to Al Horford problem. So I took his numbers from 2018 pre-All-Star break and 2019 pre-All-Star break. And you're going to guess if the number is over or under this season compared to last year. All right? Yep. So in 2018 pre-All-Star break with Boston, Al Horford posted up three and a half times a game. Is it over or under this season? I'm going to guess it's significantly under. It's over. 4.1. Really? 169 post-ups pre-All-Star in 2018, 207 pre-All-Star in 2019 with Philadelphia. So this isn't he a Brett Brown thing at all. We're gonna, it gets worse. He attempted 71 attempts out of the post in 2018 pre-All-Star break. You think it's over or under in 2019? 
Under. It's over. 71 in 2018, 111 in 2019 out of the post. 62 passes out of the post this year for 21 assists. 72 out of the post for 25 assists last year. Relatively similar numbers. Now let's look at the elbow. 3.6 elbow touches per game in 2018. Is it over or under this season? Way over. Yep, 4.8 elbow touches. So way over. He had 174 elbow touches last year before the All-Star break, 225 this year. It's top 10 in the NBA. He's attempted almost the same amount of field goals from the elbow this season as he did last year relatively the same amount of passes and assists as well. Now let's look at paint touches. 248 paint touches last year. And how many do you think he has this year, over or under? How many last year? 248. 271. No, this one's under. This is 178. 129 attempts in the paint last year, only 81 up to the all-star break this year. Now let's look in catch and shoots as well. 3.1 catch and shoot, three-point attempts per game in 2018. Is it over or under this year? Over, definitely over. Over, yeah, 4.2, so almost a shot more a game. But up until the all-star break in 2018, 149 catch and shoot threes. This year, 210 up until the all-star break. So over 50 more three-point attempts on catch-and-shoot opportunities. But this season, a lot of the misconception has been that Al Horford is not being used as a pick-and-pop guy, and he's not shooting his shots from mid-range. But he's taken 134 mid-range field goal attempts this year, which is his highest volume of mid-range field goal attempts since 2016. Okay? So all of this, to me, is screaming that age is catching up to Al Horford. This is really not a Brett Brown problem. If you look at the ways in which Philadelphia has tried to utilize Al Horford, they've posted him up more. He's gotten more elbow touches. His, his, his mid-range field goal volume is, is as high as it's been since 2016. It's really an age catching up to Al Horford thing. You've said it before. He's short on a lot of his shots. That's indicative of his legs not being under him completely. On defense, it looks like the Al Horford from last year got kidnapped. He got thrown in the back of a van, and they replaced <laughs> him with this Al Horford because his lateral quickness is not there. And if he's not keeping his opponent in front of him, his defense has been atrocious. Now, granted, he held Sabonis to two of seven. He locked up Bam at a bio. He had a good game against Giannis early in the season. So the Sixers paid Al Horford for these two reasons, in my opinion. Defensively, of course, he takes it to another notch. As you alluded to, maybe in the playoffs, he is a second gear. But defensively, he can take it to another notch. That's based on his history as a basketball player. And the fact that his highest shot selection is 25 to 29 feet. He can do it successful there. He can space the floor. Well, that hasn't been the case. Al Horford has been miserable offensively. And I just really think it's age catching up to him more than it is a Brett Brown problem. Brock wins the podcast. Wow. Um, wow. That's, that's a lot of information to absorb. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's... And, and, and here's another thing. In the fourth quarter for Boston in 2018, Al Horford was responsible for 13.1% of Boston's three-point attempts. This year in the fourth quarter, 24% of the team's three-point attempts Al Horford is responsible for. Double that number from last year. The turnover percentage in the fourth quarter in 2018, he was responsible for 12.1%. In the fourth quarter this year, 27.3%. He was responsible for 18.1% of Boston's fourth quarter points last year. This year, 12% of Philadelphia's fourth quarter points. This is a clear regression, especially due to age, and I think Boston knew that, and that's why they allocated their money a little differently. So they've... They've given so they've they've given Al every chance to be to 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 adapt to a role that they thought would be good for him based on what he's done in the past, and every single solitary opportunity, he's just underperformed, like dramatically. Mm-hmm. Essentially, so it kind of actually makes sense as to why 
he has one of the better net rating differentials on the team on the court compared to off the court. And I was looking at that stat on Sunday, and it kind of like, kind of shocked me. Tobias Harris leads the way with that stat. However, Al was a close second. And I started to think, like, Mm -hmm. am I, like, looking at, like, a bullshit stat? I'm just not sure. Um, It was weird. But it's so interesting that he, like, they've actually used him well. It's just that he's just completely been dreadful this year. And that, I guess that's, I guess you, in some ways, that's like a, a moral victory for the coaching staff, I guess. Other ways, it's sort of like, well, you're saddled with this corpse for three more years. So, wow, that's it's painful. Um, let's, I, I, I think you sort of annihilated that topic. We're, we're, we're good there. Um Let's so so. Let's begin to have the discussion about playoffs. Um, it looks like as the days go on, the Sixers are going to be facing the the Celtics or the Heat as the away team in the first round, and so I, I see the Heat, and I think okay. I, I don't trust their ability to close games offensively. Last night, Duncan Robinson airballs a three. Um, Jimmy's very passive. And they just don't really have a guy who I'm very fearful of his ability to make shots down the stretch. I mean, Jimmy's one for 16 this year um, in, in crunch time situations. And I, I like Adebayo's size, so I, that, I think that's that can sort of – irritate Embiid for a series. I I I I don't know who wins that series. But I'm I, I that series concerns me because I don't think you can establish Joel Embiid as well as you can establish him against Boston. So I'm kind of thinking like what if they just sort of settled into the six seed? You play Boston, you've beaten them three times this year. Um two of which you actually had your fully healthy roster and it's your one win against teams above 500 on the road this year. Um, so you, you know, you can do it and they don't have the size that the other teams or that the heat have. So I guess my concern is the bit that the Celtics can really sort of target guys in a playoff series, they they have Tatum, Brown, Hayward, Kemba, and those guys can just sort of keep rotating in and out of mismatches and exploit that. But outside of that, I actually like the Sixers a lot if they have a healthy Ben Simmons, which we haven't heard a word about in, the, in a week. Um, if they if they can come back healthy, I like them in, in a first round series against the Celtics. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think Boston has a very undersized team. Their front court is small. And although Jason Tatum is one of the best players in the NBA as of right now, the Sixers have his kryptonite. Uh, through four games, Ben Simmons has held Jason Tatum a 5 of 16 from the field, which is 31.3%, two turnovers. And I think Ben Simmons is an incredible defender. And last year in the playoffs, he held his own against Kawhi Leonard, but He's taken incredible strides this season. I think we'll have even more incentive. So a healthy Ben Simmons should be the best defensive player on the floor in a series against either Miami or Boston. Now, if Ben Simmons is able to neutralize Jason Tatum, I think it eliminates a lot of Boston's offense. Now, a lot of what Boston has done this year is integrate Jason Tatum and run their offense through him. Second in touches on the team. And of course, Kevin Walker's hurt. But like I said, if you can neutralize Jason Tatum, I don't think Boston has much else. I think they're going to have to get creative in other ways, which is going to be difficult because they're already going to have to try to match the size of the Sixers. Boston likes to kind of go five out small ball. Sometimes it's tough with tight, but they like to go small. The problem with playing the Sixers is if Joel Embiid is on the floor, he's going to impose his will. So there's a very select few of big men in the NBA that can impose their will to the point where the other team has to combat that. If you look at Houston, it's like 
we may play Anthony Davis. We can't go out and get another big that's going to impose their will or stop Anthony Davis from imposing his will. So we might as well try to impose our will by playing a different brand of basketball. Now we'll impose our will by spacing, going five out and shooting threes. And now there's going to be two different styles of basketball going on. And the better team is going to stay in the floor. So if the five out team is better, well, now it's up to the Lakers to try to match that. But if Anthony Davis is too good, now it's up to Houston. And that's the downfall of not having a big. So similarly for Boston, if Joel Embiid is able to impose his will early, his will early it kind of it, it, it hinders Boston's ability to go small and, and play that five-out lineup where they're, they're throwing up three-point attempts, you know. So I, I think given Boston's lack of size, like you said, the season series, and I, I just think there's a history between Philadelphia and Boston that kind of will ignite more incentive between Simmons and Embiid. And I would rather play Boston than I would Miami. I think Adebayo showed his own offensively this year, but defensively he's been playing incredibly well. He limited Giannis the other night when Miami played uh, Milwaukee. And like you said, he's the type of player that's going to give Joel Embiid fits. And, I mean, Miami just fires away. They've been one of the most consistent three-point shooting teams all season. They were top five prior to the All-Star break after they're second in the NBA. They're shooting 41.6% from beyond the arc. And a lot of their offense is penetrating and kicking or collapsing and kicking, finding an open shooter, getting shooters open. And they have shooters, plural. So Miami is a team that really worries me, especially on the road with the Sixers just jacking up threes early in the shot clock. Miami's good in transition. So I'd rather play Boston in the first round. I'm with you there, Austin. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, w- one of the things that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a world where there is a Ben Simmons playing in this playoff series. And again, you know, we, we've we heard what we've heard in, in you know, it, amongst our, our, our colleagues. Um, and I, you know, I don't know what the final decision is going to be. And obviously, if, if, if they don't have any of them, they, they don't have uh, Ben, they, they don't have a chance mm-hmm. against anybody, you know, whether it be the Heat, the Heat or the, uh, the Celtics. And I, I, I just think it's a shame because you're basically trying to, to get Brett Brown, the coach, a or trying to get Brett Brown, the captain, a sinking ship that is never going to reach its it's it's a final dock, you know, and so I I just don't know what that you know what what the verdict comes down to there, um, and and, and I think it's I I think it's just a very um a sensitive discussion that needs to be had amongst the team. Like realistically, what chance do they have in a playoff series against anyone without Ben Simmons? And then could any coach get this done, you know, with, with, with without Ben Simmons? And I, I just don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. And it's, it's, it's a shame. But what you brought up, I want to get back to. You mentioned the small ball thing right. that Boston likes to do. And I was watching, I was watching the, the, the Knicks Rockets game last night because I've been very intrigued by the new version of Russell Westbrook that is one to two, three, it's like one three pointer a game outside. You know, they're, 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 are five out. Um, and it got to me thinking, I'm thinking like, what does a five out Sixers offensive lineup sure. look like? And I, I, I texted Jason about it. And he, he, he brought up a good point. Like who is the downhill guard in that lineup? Um, and then, Obviously, we hear Anthony Tolliver gets bought out, and I was thinking, like, well, wait, that would be your stretch five. Could you play Tolliver, Harris? And oh, that doesn't matter now because Tolliver's off the market. But I'm kind of thinking, like, what would a lineup of Harris or no Scott Harris, um, Furcon, Thibel? Milton look like. I mean, 
I think it would be just a, a, a joke defensively. Like they, they wouldn't get anything done defensively. On the other hand, you would have a couple guys who can cut well, who know how to use screens. You have guys who can shoot the ball. And I, I think it'd be worth experimenting with. I, I think a lot of people on social media would be quick to be like, this is a dumb idea. Like, like you're a joke, you know, whatever. I think it's something that is innovative. And I think it would, I, I, I think it might actually not work necessarily, but it'd be an interesting experiment to see how efficiently the offense runs and what they can do in terms of well, shot selection. Ben Simmons think? is out indefinitely. If the Sixers deployed that five lineup, I would be too. I wouldn't watch that lineup. That's a G League lineup in my opinion. <laughs> now, I'm okay with small ball, and I like how Houston is being innovative. And, of course, in the James Harden sit-down interview, Rachel Nichols talked to him, and they both kind of agree that people will not appreciate either him or the small ball until it actually works, or until, of course, he's gone. The thing with small ball, though, is that you have to be lights. You, you have to, have to, have to be lights on. You got to be shooting over yeah. 45, maybe even 50% to compete with teams on most nights. Now, in a regular season with a limited interval of time to prepare for a team that's going to play small ball, they can run you off the floor. Houston will most definitely run you off the floor if you're not prepared. But in a playoff series, if you can implement a legitimate game plan, I think Houston will get washed because you can't, in my opinion, you can't win a series solely with offense. Now, it's a superstar league, so Houston will always be able to compete as long as they have James Harden and Russell Westbrook, but the team plays no defense. They, they will trade any defensive possession for an offensive possession. It, it doesn't matter to them. So if you want to run in transition and get your two, or if you want to drive and get your bucket, go ahead. Let's just get on offense. That's what it feels like when you watch Houston. And a lot of their – no, that's just that's just that's just how Mike D'Antoni. A lot of their offense is four players either standing around and one has the ball, or James Harden's at half court just waiting for the other four to go stagnant so he could get the ball and then initiate something. I enjoy watching small ball, and I think it's it's innovative and it's a unique strategy. But I don't think teams can sustain success running small ball just yet. Now it'll happen in the future. I don't think it'll work just yet. And if the Sixers went with that lineup, I think they would get embarrassed. But I investigated a lot of what the Sixers' problems are on the road, and it's pretty easy to see. This is a team on the road that thinks the only way they can win is firing up threes. It's shooting outside. Now, you can't dispute that because their number of three-point attempts, their number of attempts with 22 seconds to 18 seconds on the shot clock, and their number of catch-and-shoot attempts all double on the road it's over a hundred more attempts on the road compared to at home and I had an argument with somebody with regards to Joel Embiid not playing on the road in so many games and that's why well Joel Embiid has 77 three-point attempts at home 81 on the road if he played less games on the road you would assume that number of attempts will be less than the 77 at home but it's increased the Sixers team also posts up more on the road this season than they do at home but in the previous three years, there has been a trend that the team shoots way more threes on the road than they do at home. In 2017, they had over 100 more threes away compared to home, and they had over 25 more first quarter threes on the road compared to home. In 2018, 904 catcher shoot threes at home, 1,007 on the road. 281 first quarter threes at home, 292 first quarter threes on the road. 1,200 three-point attempts at home, 1,268 three-point attempts on the road in 2018. This is a philosophy that Houston also employs, and it's really only Houston and Philadelphia. Boston kind of does it as well, but the problem is Brett Brown and the coaching staff has been able to justify this with J.J. Redick, with Marco Bellinelli, Robert Covington, well-equipped three-point shooters. This season, their road problems are so blatantly obvious because they don't have the three-point shooting to justify using this game plan, but it's something they've gone with for the previous three, maybe even four to five seasons. Again, Brock wins it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's again. I, I I don't. I I don't think that it's a lineup that you could 
have any kind of like 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 you, like you said um you know like, like it would be something that I'd that I, I'd you'd have to walk away from and not watch. Right. I'm saying that that's something that you could like I would be intrigued by for like three minutes where I would really zone in and see. Okay, let's see what this can do because it might be interesting. Obviously, that can't last for more than three minutes because then they'll get blown off the court. But I think in terms of their ability to to, to get downhill, drive, kick, uh, slash, I think it would be at least worth exploring considering that their offense has been anemic at times this year. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Brock, let me ask you this. Last question before, before we wrap it up for tonight. Um, when's the next time we see Joel Embiid play? Have we even heard of the severity of the injury since the report? All of the, they they keep emphasizing that it's just a sprain that there is no, um, you know, structural damage. And then Kyle Newbeck on his podcast said that it that, that the team was at, was acting in a way that wouldn't invoke concern. And he didn't travel with the team on this West Coast road trip, right? Not, not currently. Okay. Doesn't mean he can't fly out. Uh, so I, uh, he's not playing tonight at ten. I doubt he plays the Kings on Thursday. The Warriors game, I, I assume he won't travel uh, for the final game of West Coast road trip. So they end this road trip on the seventh of March. Then they play the Pistons on the eleventh. It's Wednesday the eleventh at home. They have a four-game homestand, Pistons, Pacers, Wizards, Raptors. I assume one of those games are the games he comes back. I like to think it's Detroit after this West Coast road trip, but I'm inclined to think it's going to be the Pacers, Saturday, 314. Hmm, interesting. I think he is back for the Golden State game. National TV, low-pressure environment, easy matchup. I think he comes back for that one. Um, Brock, any, any last words? No, sir. Go Sixers. Hopefully they get the win tonight. Very limited, but they're playing the Lakers 10 o'clock. Stranger things have happened. The line is 12 and a half. Last time I checked Lakers, you taking that line? Uh, yes. Yes, I, I, I am. I, yeah, I, I, I think the Sixers lose by 20 or more. <laughs> well, maybe they'll go with that five out small ball I, lineup tonight and, and put whatever, put, put your hopes to rest. Listen, I, there will be a rampant tweets about that lineup if 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 they do if they were to uh to do me that solid favor. He's Brock Landis. I am Austin Krell. You can follow him, Landis Brock, on Twitter. I am Krell TPL. Thanks always for listening, and we'll be back very soon for another episode of the Feed to Embiid.